You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Welcome to episode 63 of the Team Guru Podcast. My name's David Frizzell, and for the very first time, we have a repeat guest to the show. Back in episode 33, I had Lee Carraher on the show to talk about generations at work. We had an awesome conversation about boomers, exes, and millennials, their peculiar generational characteristics, and the way they interact in the workplace. Well, today Lee returns, and she has tucked under her arm a brand new book, The Boomerang Principle. The idea that as business owners and leaders, it should be our goal to inspire lifetime loyalty in our employees. Lifetime loyalty, that's a big call, Lee. Why should that be our goal? What are the benefits? And, of course, how do you do it? For all that and more, stay tuned for my second conversation with Lee Carraher. Carraher, welcome back to the Team Guru Podcast. Thank you so much for having me back. What an honor. Hey, you know what? It is an honor, Lee. You are the very first person I've ever had back on my podcast. Woot, woot. Yeah. You were episode number 33 when you came on and we talked all about baby boomers, Gen X, Gen Y, how they can get along in the workplace. That was an awesome episode. I loved it. And I got some really good feedback about that. And here we are back. I think this is going to be episode 63 or 64, something around there. Oh my gosh. And you're the first one I've ever had back. Now, this is a real coincidence because not only are you the first person I've ever had back, you're here to talk about your new book, which is called The Boomerang Principle. That is Mm -hmm. a lovely coincidence. There we go. Exactly. Boomerang. You know, a back. lot of people would say that's ironic, but as we know, <laughs> ironic is one of the most overused words in the English language. And that is not ironic, I'm afraid. It's just a lovely coincidence. Exactly. All right. Now tell me, you had an epiphany way back when you were running a large firm during the dot-com boom. You had an epiphany that led to this whole idea of the boomerang principle. Tell us about that era, that dot-com era, and the epiphany that it led to. Sure. So back in 2000 or 1999, I had a big company and it was very hard to keep people in the company because there was very scarce in terms of the talent available. And there were jobs every day, everywhere, right? Yeah. There were jobs everywhere. People were poaching, getting 50% raises. The whole, mm. it was all crazy. Yeah. And my boss said, keep everybody you can. Because if you don't have the bodies, you can't bill the dollars. So we had this culture of counter offer and seemed like every day someone would come into my office and say, I got an offer for so-and-so. What are you going to give me to stay? It was so exhausting, David. I just, oh, so terrible. And one day I just woke up. I said, I'm done. I am not doing this anymore. Why are we reserving this cash on the P&L for a counteroffer instead of rewarding the people who are working hard and staying in their seats? 
staying so, loyal. I mean, I, no, I love you, it. It's yeah, so, it's it's crazy. And I love the way in your book you described that what that did to the culture of that organization. It was so negative, right? Mm. Everybody knew everybody else. Every time someone junior would walk into my office, they'd all be like, "You think he's going to get a raise or not?" You know. <laughs> And he comes out or she comes out with a smile on their face. Exactly. They've so just played I didn't you even, for- I just said, I'm done. I am done. I'm not doing this again. And I didn't even have time to tell my team that this was going to be the new rule when someone walked into my office that day and said, I got a job offer at so-and-so. And I said, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> and this and is he was not- shocked. He was shocked. He was pissed. <laughs> yeah. And you say that shocked. he only stayed in his next job for a very short period. So he's clearly just very using that short. leverage. Yeah. So when I just said, he goes, why aren't you going to counter me? I'm like, I'm done with that. But, you know, good luck to you. Where are you going <laughs> again? And I gave him some tips on how he's going to survive at that company. And I said, you know what? I hope you come back here. When you're ready to leave from that company, call me and hopefully we'll have a space for you here. Mm-hmm. Well, he didn't really like that answer. <laughs> yeah. Well, everyone pissed. before him had got a 50% raise. Exactly. So <laughs> he actually left, so he was not boomerang eligible. But yep. he left my office in a total huff, you know, threw open the door. She did oh, really? counter. I'm like, oh, wow. You don't say that in the dumb. You're being an idiot. But yeah. um, later that day, I just got everybody together and I said, we're done. We are no more counters. We're going to put all of the resources into making sure you guys stay. And if you don't want to stay, I will help you leave. I know everybody in the city. Tell me where you want to go. I'll make a phone call. Because when I could make, you know, the interest is in having happy employees. (laughs) That's the interest. Mm -hmm. Because it's cheaper. It is cheaper and a better business to have happy employees. And better for organizational culture, I'm imagining. Always. A better culture is always better for sustainability, period. So that's what I did. And funnily enough, when we stopped countering, people stopped leaving. Mm-hmm. And my numbers went up. <laughs> Voila! So when I started my own company in 2002, we came into this company with that philosophy that people might not want to stay here all the time. They might go somewhere else. But that if they left in good standing, if they were a person who was performing well, that we would welcome them back. And that since we started the company 15 years ago, actually today, we have rehired over a dozen people and we have rehired four people twice. So That has contributed to our ability to stay in business and to stay in business with the rules and the culture that we want. It's a little bit, it runs against the grain of history a little bit, doesn't it? When you say we welcome people back with open arms, it sounds kind of natural. It sounds like a great idea. But when we think back to organizational culture, a lot of organizations has been, it's an us and them world. And Michael Bloomberg famously talks about, you know, there are three types of people. There is us and then there's them. And even worse, there's people who used to be us. So if you've left, you're kind of even more on the outside than someone who has never been part of us. So Mm -hmm. it is a a subtle but significant, yeah, subtle but significant change in the way of thinking, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I think the 
mistake is thinking about loyalty when you pay someone. When you're paying yes. somebody, that's not loyalty. That make that's a transaction. Yeah. Yeah. I'm paying you. Yeah. You work. That's what happens. Loyalty yeah. is really measured by what you do when you don't have to. Yeah. And that yeah. really can't happen when you're paying somebody. <laughs> you can have good employees and they work really hard and they're very proud of their work and they're all working together, you know, pulling the oars in the same direction. But if you're paying them, that's not a loyal act, right? The concept that you're dead to me if you leave me, it's so antiquated and it really belongs back before 1988 when publicly traded companies started getting rid of people for shareholder value. And when that got accelerated, obviously, after 2008. So we know today that employees, people have to craft their own careers and they should not count on a company to be able to hold them throughout their whole career anymore. This is just, we have to take control of our own careers. And companies have not necessarily adjusted to the reality that they created. If you want to inject some energy and leadership expertise into your next event, why not invite David to speak? He'll get things moving. You bring up a really interesting point. That lesson that you learned back in the boom of the dot-com era where people were having enormous offers and you were having to make counter-offers to, to keep them, you stopped that. But at the same time, well, not long after that, a few years after that, of course, the economy changed significantly. And it wasn't we weren't in the middle of the dot-com boom anymore. We were fast approaching what ended up being the GFC, and the organization landscape changed significantly for employees. They weren't having those huge offers. And then at the same time, another change came along. And of course, we've got our Gen Ys entering the workforce and they have a completely different take on their career. And in a way, they've been forced to because of the environment. So tell us about that concept you mentioned just briefly there about millennials, Gen Ys, needing to craft, actively manage their own career paths. How is that different to those who've come before them? Well, I think there's two things. One is the expectation of millennials that they'll be working very long. I think boomers, and I'm the last year of a boomer, we thought we'd be all retired by 50, truly. Yeah, we're going to make our money. <laughs> we'll be on the beach. We'll be going to Australia. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that didn't happen, right? In 2008, 8 million boomers lost their jobs in the United States. 8 million boomers who couldn't afford to. They also lost up to 50, 60, 70% of the savings. Mm -hmm. And they're planning to work into their 70s and even 80s. Millennials today believe they'll be working for a very long time, right? Their parents have demonstrated to them that they're going to work. They take a different approach (laughs) into it then, right? Exactly. And they also think they're not going to do the same thing for their whole careers, unlike Particularly older boomers thought, I want to go into this career. I'm going to stay in this career. It's all I'm going to do. And now we see people who are doing renaissance careers, re-entering and doing different things at 40, at 35, yeah. at 50, that kind of thing. So it's when you just, are going to change careers, you have to have your own path on that. No one's just going to hire you to, at the same level to change your career. That's the concept. 
That's so interesting. There's so much stuff there. I'm sorry that I, I tried to interrupt you. I should have just w- left my questions for the end. <laughs> Look, there's a lot of really interesting stuff in that. I love that concept. So boomers thought they were going to retire early. I don't know where they got that concept from. I, I guess they were they were part of this massive wealth generation after oh. the Second World War. Is, well, is that where, that's that, where right? it came from? Yeah. The world, well, Western world economy grew during the same time that boomers were coming into the workplace and going that whole generation, 20 years of growth. Mm-hmm. Tremendous growth, never been seen before growth in the world of economy, <laughs> like being able to be yeah. counted. Tremendous yeah. growth with a huge population. Well, growth in the economy has been slowing for a long time, right? And then you have these catastrophic events with the dot-com implosion and the NASDAQ, and then the 2008, you know, worldwide global just implosion. And just the concept of growth, the never-ending growth, really comes to a screeching halt. And the disappointment that boomers feel that the reality they thought about their whole lives was a pipe dream is really in the culture today. And they've been trying to help their children, who are now adults, make sure they don't make the same mistakes, right? And the great, uh, I don't know, coincidence, poetry, I almost said irony, is that there's some chance that maybe the millennials won't have to work so long. They will be around as the artificial intelligence revolution hits our workforce, hits our industries. And depending on the way we manage it at a political level, perhaps we won't need to work forever. Perhaps there'll be an answer where productivity or value is being added to the global economy by human beings lying on the beach. So even though they've Mm -hmm. learned this lesson from their boomer parents, and it's a well-learned one, and I'm glad the trend is that millennials are going into their career thinking they'll be working for a long time so they can approach it that way mentally, but maybe they'll find there's a little bit of a bonus somewhere around 2030. 2035, where most of us are completely, not only are most of us unemployed, but we might be unemployable. And there is nothing that we can do that robots can't do better. And wouldn't it be nice if we've managed it politically, that that is actually a good thing. Being unemployed is a good thing and uh, you will be supported and the robots are bringing in the wealth. So maybe that's how it'll end up for these millennials. I hope so. What do you think? Any chance, Lee? (laughs) Well, I think that's probably possible in a couple of sectors, and the issue is not going to be the eventuality, but the issue is going to be how we get from here to there and who gets co-opted out of opportunity while we transition. And I really think about software engineers today who, if they're not agile, if they're not getting relevant every single day with new skill sets, There are swaths of engineers who can't get hired right now because all of their work is being automated with AI. And and at the moment, we're not necessarily taking care of them, right? Well, that's the thing. That's the issue. You know, the issue with our economy is that the, you know, the most have the most and the rest, Mm. I mean, I'm sorry, the least have the most and the most don't have enough. And cost just keeps going up. So while I would love to imagine your vision, and I do Mm -hmm. think your vision will be true for some people, you know, what do you do with the people who work at McDonald's? Yeah, well, 
And that, that is the thing. As I said, it depends on how we deal with it politically. At the moment, we still see unemployment or we see unemployment as a negative thing in someone's life. And of course it is mm-hmm. because they're at best on, you know, we have here, you have welfare benefits. We have the same kind of thing here. It's below poverty line stuff. If you're mm-hmm. unemployed, what you get from the government. But so it's still seen as a negative thing. But in some point during the future, we have to shift our thinking and we have to organize our economy and structure the way that we look after the unemployed or the unemployable so that it's not a shameful thing anymore because that is just the nature of the way the industries, different industries are going. And as you rightly point out, some industries will go that way far before others. It's a new and emerging hobby horse of mine, Lee. But anyway, I've taken us off track slightly. I love something (laughs) else that you said in there. You talked about people having a renaissance career and that is, of course, having an mm-hmm. impact on on the workforce and the landscape. What is a renaissance career at 35 and 40? I think what we see here is that people get disinterested or their industry changes so much that they're not employed. There are lots of companies who, when you go and succeed at them, you basically work yourself out of a job because it's been automated or it's obsolete because the business has changed so much. And then in order to be employed, you know, the foolish thing to do would be just to find another job in the same category in order to be co-opted and obsoleted again. <laughs> so they look to a new career that they're more interested in or the, where there's opportunity. And this is where you see a lot of solopreneurs. You know, we see a lot of people who start online businesses mm. who are hustling and doing things in a different way on their own behalf because they don't want to be dependent on an organization for them to, you know, make the money they need to make. So a lot of people do that or they so you, come you together said against a cause. There. You, I'm a sorry, lot of you said sol, so that's someone on a sole trader on their own being an entrepreneur. Correct. Great. Sorry, keep going. I interrupted you again. I'm a terrible person. <laughs> But then we see a lot of, we have a couple of clients this way. They are in their 50s. They've made some money. They still need to work, but they have the luxury of not having to have a big salary. And they can dive into sort of, quote unquote, good work. So a work for a cause that generates revenue, generates income, but also then helps people of a certain need. And we see lots and lots of this happening right now. It's a great way to make sure you're not reliant on someone else, especially mid to late career, starting your own little thing. If you've gathered some skills across your career that you can sell, you can package up and sell as a product or sell as a service. That is an awesome way to circumnavigate that rough road that lots of 50s and 60s something who Mm -hmm. need a job have with employers. That's uh, that's awesome. Unfortunately, not everyone can do that. Not everyone has worked in industries through their career where they can do that. But for those who have, it is such a great option. All right, let's go back to this boomerang concept, the boomerang principle. So the idea is that people who have worked for you before can go and work in other companies and champion the services that previous employees provided. Consultants Mm -hmm. who leave and work with clients. Now, we all know that that is a really common career path. And in consulting firms, some people who do that can, depending on the firm, can be re- seen as a real pariah. If you've left your consulting firm, that really tight-knit team that consultants often are, and go and work with the client, you can be seen really badly back in your consulting firm, depending on who you are. The big four have done that really well for a long time. But 
The boomerang principle suggests that that person is your best advocate. If they used to work for your firm and they know the way you work and they know the skills that exist, they can be one of your best referrers. They can become advocates for the work that you do and your employees. So who is better at this than others? Are boomers good at this? Do boomers still have it locked in that the boomerang principle doesn't exist and if you left, you are dead to us? And if I left, I am dead to them? Or have they come around and, and seen the light? Or is it is this an X's and a millennials thing? No, I think it's an anybody thing as long as the company has that mindset, right? Yeah. So, and I think more and more companies are coming around to this mindset. Talk a little about how you can do that in a second. But it's when you are a former employee, you have it all in your power to be boomerang eligible, regardless if the company is ready for you or not. You're out there, you see an opportunity for the company you just were at, and you bring it to them. You find a person that you think would be great for a job that you know is open, and you send them in with your endorsement. You are at a company that could be a partner of your for a company, and you make it happen for both entities' benefit, even though you don't have to, right? Every time someone leaves your company, they can help you or hurt you. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's nothing wrong with helping people help you. There's only upside. And in this environment today worldwide, where we have people like you and me who have our own personal brands, independent of the companies we work for or worked for, the person with the personal brand has the most opportunity in business for themselves or as an employee. And anybody who's on social media has a personal brand, right? So <laughs> Good everybody who leaves you can help or hurt you. The weakest employee is the one who has no impact on you when they leave. But that's mm-hmm. fewer and fewer people in, you know, thought generation, you know, white collar jobs, I guess, for lack of a better term. So you told us that you would talk about how we could come around to this mindset. Mm-hmm. What sort of changes do you see people go through when they when they approach this mindset and, and dump that concept that are, those official or unspoken rules against hiring past employees or having at least positive relationships with past employees? Well, I think the first thing you find is that companies that people can return to are companies that people don't want to leave, Right. And there's something worth to return to. And when you have identified that it's a company culture and business and opportunity worth to return to, that's validating of the enterprise, right? It also means that you you don't wait to invest in people. What we see today in some places is I don't want to put any time against those millennials or these new hires because they're not going to stay very long and I'll be back at square one, starting over again, you know, training somebody new to do this dumb work. Well, <laughs> all that does is move people to the door faster. You are yeah, hurting yourself faster than if you just said, you know what? This person, we hired them. I'm optimistic. I know they're going to leave. I'm going to help them be as productive and successful as possible while they're here. And that's going to help me. That's going to help the company. That's going to help them. And here's the irony is that when you help them help the company, you help them stay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that is an irony. That is irony. (laughs) Yeah, that is. 
So, so that's don't the first wait thing. to invest the in thing, them, right? The first thing is not to wait. The first thing is to move as quickly as you can to get them trained and get the into the culture and get them in, integrated into a team so they can perform. Because everybody wants mm. to perform. Everybody wants to matter. Who doesn't want to do yeah. that? You know, that's how yeah. I operate. You know, that 1% of the 1% who doesn't want to do that, well, we'll sort them out and get them out the door fast anyway. But the yeah. most, the most of us want to do that. And anything we can mm-hmm. do to help to do that helps us, helps the company, helps them. It's a win-win-win. The second thing that companies can do, and, and companies of every size should do this, I so strongly believe this, is create corporate-led alumni clubs. So, you know, there's lots of quote-unquote alumni clubs on LinkedIn, right? But these are rogue. These are run by p- former employees. They're not run mm-hmm. by the company. What yeah. I'm talking about is a company-led effort to keep the people that you once thought were worthy of employing mm-hmm. attached to you, right? So much yeah. like a university would do or does in informing people who went through the university, what's going on on campus? How's the sports team doing? What are the professors doing? All that kind of stuff. And then helping their former students recruit new students. This is the same dynamic we can create in the corporate side so that people remain attached to our brands, our companies, their employers, and so that it's a badge of honor to have Mm -hmm. our companies on those great employees' resumes. And that that corporate alumni program is not hard to do, doesn't cost a lot of money, but has tremendous returns. That really flips around that Bloomberg principle, doesn't it? That concept that if you used to work for us and you don't, you're worse than people who who have never worked for us. You are further outside the, the yep. circle. It puts them on the other side. It puts them still well inside the circle. It says, look, mm-hmm. if you used to work for us, you're special and we want to keep in touch with you. And, you know, that that obviously speaks very directly to this, this boomerang principle. I love it, Lee. They're great. They're great concepts. So don't wait to invest in people. And ironically, it means that they don't leave. They're more likely to stay longer. Create a corporate-led alumni club. Awesome. What else is there? Those are the two big things, right? Because when you have those two philosophies and functions, so much goodness comes from those, right? So much efficiency comes from the fact that you're not trying to hold on to people when they don't want to be there. And you're trying to find opportunity that matches your employees' desires. And I'm not talking about like everybody gets to do whatever they want to do. I'm talking about people who are high performers. They really have as many options as they want in the world. And they will continue to, even in an AI world, I really believe this, we're all going to be looking for the top 25 percenters, always. It's a finite group, always. And those of us who can attract those top 25-20ers are going to have much more opportunity and much more success. So that motivation is about helping those people achieve their goals within the construct of what your company offers. Unfortunately, it's really messy. You know, people are messy. It's not check the box HR, right? But when you sort of embrace that ecosystem of human messiness, everything gets a lot simpler and you get to say yes and no much easier. And the less friction you can have in your teams and your culture, 
the more successful you are, the more profitable you are, and the more sustainable you are. And in a an environment where organizations are changing so quickly, there's nothing more relevant than staying relevant to the people who you employ. So Lee, we talked about earlier the way that millennials will will lead the way in in individuals shaping their own career path, playing an active role in managing the way they move between roles, move between jobs, pick up new skills, the direction they're heading. What does that mean for employers? I know we've just talked about the boomerang principle. That's the number one way they change their game. What new skills do employers need to have as we watch people actively manage their own career? Mm -hmm. Well, I think we all have to be coaches, not managers, right? What's the difference between a coach and a manager? A manager is someone who is trying to manage a person to an outcome that is very prescribed and is within the company structure. Do this, do that, do this then, don't do it that way, do it this way. A coach is a it's it's very subtle, but it's an important nuance. A coach is trying to help people realize their potential within an organization. So it might look the same in terms of an outcome. Like I did this, I worked on this team, we achieved that. But the difference is in the empowerment and the feeling of the employee. I was able to actualize this myself versus being managed, which is the construct is very small as if I was in a cog in the wheel. And a millennial world view is very not that. It's very flat, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Millennials have grown up with more power in their hand than went to the moon. They've grown up with the ability to email anybody, to tweet at anybody, to take pictures of anybody, you know, to have access or at least the impression of access to people and information. And they get into organizations and people don't give them access to information or people. And that's the first biggest mistake that companies make because, frankly, most young people know more about our companies than we do. I remember that from our first conversation back in episode mm-hmm. 33, where uh, we talked about the fact that boomers knew they had to wait. They might right. have to wait years and years and years before they even saw a vice president or if they were on the same floor as a vice president and they knew that there was that way it went because one day they might be sitting in that cubicle or in that office themselves. Millennials, they stroll into the workforce and they want to meet him on the first day or meet her on the first day. They want to connect with them on LinkedIn or maybe even Facebook. It's a really different way of thinking about it, isn't it? And Absolutely. I love that point that you made about coach versus manager. It's just, you know the same dynamic as the, the difference between a leader and a manager. Yeah. And in very simplistic terms, we, we often say you manage the work and you lead people. Yes. And I think the truth in leadership is that People choose to be led by you. Mm. Oh, wow. That's the line. That is a line very familiar. (laughs) People choose to be led by you, and particularly the top performers. Everyone wants to be, everybody wants leadership in their life, a moral Mm. compass, like here's the direction, here's where we're going. And I'm not talking about political leadership, but business leadership, people have choices. Everybody has a choice. And while my people at the bottom rung who are not making minimum wage may not feel they have choices, you know, people who are striving to make a difference will always have a choice. 
And if you are not a leader who is providing the listening skills, the coaching skills, the belief in opportunity, then you're a leader who has short-lived and will not have sustainability or the kind of profit that businesses require. You're so right. I like that line. You said people choose to be led by you. I, I often say that an org chart can tell you who your manager is, the person who yeah. is allowed as, as far as the organization goes to tell you what to do, to give you some direction, to give you your tasks to do, to manage the work that you do. An org chart cannot tell you who your leader is. You choose your leader because they've got something that makes you want to follow them. And that's, mm-hmm. again, one of the differences between leadership and management or coaching and management. And you say that as we move into the new paradigm, the ever-evolving paradigm really of workplace relationships, that being a leader, being a coach rather than a manager is one of the the very most important things that you can think to do as someone Mm -hmm. senior in an organization. Yeah. And I think organizations who think about, I always like to say leadership training is the new black, right? Mm. It's required. We should not be saving leadership development until you've gone through Mm, management. No, leadership development should start day one at our lowest, for like a better word, lowest levels. Because in particular, millennials believe they can lead from any, you know, any seat in the boat. Mm -hmm. So if you allow leadership to be grow up everywhere, sprout up everywhere, be everywhere, be within everyone, you're just in an opportunity and you've created a culture where people feel more responsible for the job. People see their opportunity and their choices and people choose to be led. Lee, when you wrote this second book of yours, The Boomerang Principle, did you realize how close in theme it was going to be to your first book, the book that you wrote about generations in the workforce? You know, I don't know that I thought about it that way, but it is clearly very, you know, they go hand in hand, right? Mm, the second do. book, sort of the bigger concept, and the first book is more brass tacks about how to work together productively yeah. and, and positively. Yeah. You know, I think culture is culture. And if I can do anything to help people have better cultures in their companies, I'm going to do it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Particularly as a woman business owner, there's not very many women leaders who write books about how to lead. There's lots of women uh, authors who write how to navigate a great career. And I read them all and I take yep. great you know, nuggets of wisdom from them all. But I think, you know, in an environment where at least half of the companies in this country are led by women, the more we can have women voices talking about how to lead women and men, the better we're going to be in understanding how to lead in this very diverse environment. So the book is called The Boomerang Principle. You can get it anywhere. We don't need to tell you where to get it. That's so old-fashioned. You can just type it into Google and you can work out how to get it. <laughs> what is next for you, Lee? I've really enjoyed both your books. I've really enjoyed both the conversations I've had with you. And I'm intrigued to know next because, of course, your business is not about leadership. Your business no. is about running a publicity company. And yeah. of course, you've just learned how to be a fantastic leader along the way running your own business and and working for some of the the big corporations, big organizations before that. So what's next for you, Lee? Well, today I'm going to have dinner. (laughs) Oh, that's very specific. (laughs) 
<laughs> so you're telling me you're yeah. not thinking about the next book yet. You're just no, uh, beginning to publicize I, this one. You know what's so funny? People ask me all the time, and I have like six different books in my head. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, I think I'm still on this path of how to help leaders be great leaders in a very fluid environment and how to build relevance into your organization so that you don't find yourself going out of business before you wanted to. Because so many businesses in my business in PR. So I started my company in 2002, Facebook, LinkedIn, Snapchat, none of those things existed, right? And many, many, many PR firms have gone out of business in the last 15 years because they didn't stay relevant. And I think, Mm -hmm. well, the skill sets are relevant. Like, how do you do social media? What is the difference between Instagram and Snapchat? And how do you have a good LinkedIn? What all those things, right? The relevance in leadership is a huge black hole of nothingness. And we don't have enough people ready to lead us into the uncertainty of what's next. And anything I can do to help that, I will. So there'll be something. I'm not sure what it is yet. <laughs> well, you can be sure we'll have you back on for a third time when it does happen, Lee. I want to be on 99. So I was on 33, 66, I would be on 99. Yeah, That would be nice. I don't think you are going to be 66, though. I think you're going to be slightly before that. But maybe I should should try and hold you over for 66. No, 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 I'm kidding. That's too far away. (laughs) Maybe you can be 99. It might take you that long to write another book. Maybe that's fair. All right, hey, Lee Carraher. It does take time. I bet it does because you've got a business to run at the same time as well. Actually, yes. well, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get rid of you. But t- tell us about your process. So you know the process of writing a book now. For those who are interested in that, what kind of time do you put into it? Does it draft itself in your head and then you just sit down and bang it all out? Or how does it work? As the cliche question, what is your process, Lee? <laughs> well, the process from my first book was – my publisher said, hey, I'll publish that book. And I was like, I don't know what book are you talking about? You know, that How to Work with Millennial book you keep, you're talking about. I'm like, I'm not talking about a book. I'm just trying to help you. <laughs> and I realized, wait, a publisher is going to publish a I've book a I book. haven't even conceived yet. I'll, I'll, I'll take her up on that. And that book was really came out of pretty quickly. It only took three months to write because it was really born out of our experience of failing and then figuring out how to succeed at it. The second book was born out of me talking about my first book. And so many people I talked to were like, well, those millennials are just dead to me. And I was like, so frustrated. I'm like, no. Have you read the book? Have you read it? But they're not (laughs) dead to you. That's you're hurting yourself when you say that. And a couple of people said, well, that's the book you need to write. So basically, I'm writing the books people ask me to write (laughs) Ah, now nice. I just realized that. And then yeah, when right. I was able to <laughs> this is therapy, you know, really right? read those things, you know, I want to be in service and I'm trying, I'm here on the planet to help people do things better. So if I can do that, I will. Awesome. Good on you. Well, well, Lee Carraher, I know that it is almost your weekend. So have a fabulous weekend. Thank you so much again. I'm going to wrap up for real this time. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you back on the Team Guru podcast. Thank you so much. What a fun thing talking with you again. And that was Lee Carraher 
former employees who work as unofficial business developers who champion our cause, give us positive PR, and may even return one day as more mature, experienced professionals. Makes a lot of sense. It makes much more sense than the old way, the Michael Bloomberg way who famously treats ex-employees as if they've been wiped off the face of the planet. He won't even shake their hands as they depart, apparently. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Lee on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teams with an S dot guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud or LinkedIn and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.